0: Welcome to Media Review Pod, a variety podcast of discussions, opinions, and interviews focusing on the entertainment side of media. My name is Richard Santiago, and as always, you can tweet us using the Twitter handle at Pod with the hashtag MediaReviewPod. You can also send us an email at MediaReviewPod at gmail.com with any questions, comments, or suggestions, or you can just leave a voicemail by calling 407-603-5847. I have a guest today with whom I haven't had a straight-up conversation in over, what, a decade? Getting there. And <laughs> I'm, I'm very grateful that she's here with us today and not frozen in the unrelenting snow of the Northern Hemisphere. <laughs> with me today is writer, producer, director, Elizabeth, Liz, <laughs> Thing. welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be
0: here. So so should I call you Lizzie, Lizbeth, Liz? <laughs> um, I would say like that 99%
1: of people call me Liz.
0: Okay. Yeah. I've been wanting to get you on the podcast for a while because I remember you put out a, a, a Facebook post um, where you were asking about the saturation of podcasts in the world, <laughs> right? And yeah. I, I, was, I was just curious where, where that was coming from. You said you were thinking about uh, putting a podcast out. So my question to you is, is that idea still in the works? Is that already a done yeah. deal? Um,
1: not a done idea? deal, but um, something mm-hmm. that, um, something that we're definitely working on. Me and the same couple of buds who we made like the lower plateau together, we have a plan for a podcast about um, gentrification in Montreal. um so yeah uh, i've been trying to like check out some different things podcast wise and kind of learn the different formats and whatever it's huge there's so many podcasts
0: so are you thinking about doing it uh a narrative type of type of deal
1: um i guess like i don't totally understand the different types entirely but from what i understood online um it would be like a documentary podcast it's a best, a okay. thing, I guess so it's like a bit like investigative like each episode would be about a neighborhood in Montreal and one of the ways in which it's like being gentrified
0: okay yeah. have you Have you heard any of those
1: I've heard a couple mostly focused on harm reduction um because like that's just like the world that I'm in and one of the biggest podcasts in Canada right now if not the biggest podcast in Canada is a podcast about um the drug war uh so it's a documentary podcast uh, by people
0: okay. who use drugs from Vancouver, yeah, okay, yeah, well, um, I don't know if you've heard of serial.
1: Yeah, oh, I haven't listened to it yet, those again. Okay. okay,
0: oh yeah, the season one is fantastic. and yeah. then there were there were uh, a couple of offshoots from Serial mm-hmm. Shittown. Oh, I think I've never that's that. the one of the offshoots. and then last year, they came out with one about schools in New York. Um, which was great.
1: Yeah, that sounds totally up my alley. Thank you.
0: So today, we'll be talking about a film that seems to be on crisis. I mean, a film called Crisis, (laughs) which you can rent and stream right now. I don't want to bury the lead, but it's not great. (laughs) (laughs) But before we get into all of that, Liz, it's been a while, and Mm. I would like to... Pick your brain for a moment, if that's okay.
1: Yeah, please. Let's chat.
0: All right. So I just I just want the audience to get to know you and about you. So where were you born and raised?
1: Um, I was born and raised in Windsor, Ontario. Um, then I moved to LaSalle, Ontario, which is like you know ten minutes away. <laughs> um, okay. And then I moved to Montreal when I was nineteen. Um, and I've mostly lived here, except for the few years that I spent uh, with you in L.A.
0: So before you came to USC, because you, you you went to USC for for grad school, yeah. Right. So before that, what was your int- was your interest always film?
1: Uh, pretty much, I think I decided when I was about um, twenty or twenty one that that's really like what I wanted to be doing. Um, but even before that, like I was into theater, I was into you know arts and crafts, um, all that stuff when I was a kid. Uh, but yeah, I think I started to get really serious. Um, in my early
0: 20s. Okay. What was your undergrad?
1: I did my undergrad in um, cultural studies, uh, which is sort of like applying, um, I don't know, like trying to give context to pop culture, like the political, social, historic context of pop culture. Um, And my minor was in international development. So thinking about um, the development processes of different countries, uh, the economies of different countries. Yeah.
0: Okay. All right. Was Was there a particular movie while you were growing up or before you started to think about film school that kind of gave you that itch or, or kind of clicked in your head and said, all right, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life.
1: I think a couple of stand out. Um, for me at first, it was just like, I just enjoy this so much. So like when I'm like, you know, 12, 13 years old, um, and spending all my weekends, like watching videos, it was just like, Oh my gosh, this is so fun. And back then, like, you know, Reality Bite stands out as a movie that I was like, okay, okay, like this seems like a good life, you know? <laughs> and okay. that movie is about a filmmaker. Um and uh, she's living in a big city with all her like diverse friends. I mean, diverse uh friends and um yeah, and I was like looking at that, you know, as a, a kid in a relatively small place and thinking like that looks that looks pretty exciting. Um but I also remember seeing Magnolia, which would have come out when I was more like 18, 19 years old. Um Okay. And that really struck me as like, okay, okay. So you can like, you can like say some some deep stuff here. <laughs> and at that point, like I'm already like you know deep into just watching movies for the fun of it. You know, it's like very much what my friends and I like bonded about. But for some reason, that one really struck me as like, wow, like you can talk about like some life stuff, you know?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Also, that movie has a, a very unique uh, way of of uh, narrative. Because even though part of
1: it, yeah, it's it's kind of like um, I don't know. It's so many things together. It's not a straightforward story, and it's a lot about like a feeling and this like um, these themes that come in and out about like how to live a good life or not.
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. It 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 also touches on the different plagues that we as human beings have. So
1: oh my gosh, that's such an interesting take.
0: It has cancer. Mm. It has pedophilia. Um it has neglect from from parents. Yeah. it has so, so many, so many different um, aspects of our lives as human beings mm-hmm. that we might consider plagues yeah. uh, that we kind of have to either get rid of or overcome. And um, for me, that year was was fantastic for movies. Mm. but that that that's that's one of my I, I own that movie and oh, yeah, um, I, I watch it at least once a year. I think it's it's fantastic. Uh, like I said the narrative in that movie going back and forth from people to people and these rich yeah. characters that even even when when you're when you're focusing on one character you're thinking so what what's this other character doing and how does this all tie up together.
1: We were um, so lucky in a way like I feel like um, our youth was marked by some really incredible movies. Um mm. that you know just took for granted that every year there was going to be like a Forest Gump and an American Pie, a Magnolia, <laughs> The Matrix. You know these like kind of like yeah. um, in a lot of cases yeah. like game changing movies, and getting to see them in theaters. You know because that was basically the way <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah,
0: to yeah, exactly. see them.
1: Um, it's really different than now. It's it's really different than flipping through ten thousand titles on on Netflix.
0: Yeah, I know. But that year in particular, nineteen ninety nine. It's I hmm. think it's when that movie came out. Um, we also had is that like, the, Matrix, the Matrix. Too? Yeah, 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 The Matrix. And um, I remember we that. also had, um, let me see, Fight Club, I think, came out that year. Okay. And American Beauty came out that year. Oh, wow, yeah. So that, that was a that good year. That movie blew my
1: mind. That movie that was blew a my year. mind when I saw it. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, so I also, I mean, I do wonder too if it wasn't like, it's not also the moment in your life that you encounter a movie.
0: Right. You know, I yeah, don't yeah.
1: know if you showed me The Matrix now, if I would watch with the same sort of like jaw drop, you know?
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, well, OK, so I think The Matrix is one of those films that even though, let's say, the effects don't age well, the story mm-hmm. is still very, uh, very well done. OK, mm-hmm. and it's it's something that's still very prevalent nowadays. Mm-hmm. And for maybe kids who say, oh, those mo- movies now do better effects than that movie. Mm-hmm. In order for them to probably appreciate that more it would be great to give them a, a, a historical background or context to when that mm-hmm. movie was made and how right. effects weren't that awesome until we saw The Matrix. <laughs> um, so but but, but yeah. I, I, I did an entire podcast of The Matrix. Um, when uh, I think it was, uh, yeah, 2019. Oh, that was one of the ones I downloaded. Movie.
1: I haven't listened to it yet, but I did. I did see that, and I was like, "Oh, right. I have to
0: listen to." It. So, so yeah, and and we, uh, I it was with uh, with Jerry White, and oh, we awesome. we went into the whole Matrix thing. Uh <laughs> yeah. we did a, a very deep dive with it. That was fun, and it's still it's still a, a, a movie that I enjoy, and I think mm. that. The younger generation will still enjoy even yeah. after they've seen Endgame or all of these <laughs> other movies that have uh, totally. uh, so, so many awesome uh, visual effects that um, have to give thanks to The Matrix
1: yeah
0: um, anyway so back, back to film so yeah. Magnolia was the film that kind of quote unquote changed your perspective on film mm-hmm. and then you were you were looking to maybe learn what the whole the entire filmmaking process was when you signed on to usc um,
1: yeah i came in really ignorant i came in really really ignorant i um i knew that i loved movies i had done theater so i'd worked with actors um i had very little i had zero concept of how a production might unfold they had done like basic little videos and like little video editing but um I spent a couple of years after, um, after undergrad, trying to learn more about the industry in Montreal um, with limited mm-hmm. success. I did some free internships and, um, you know, okay. tried to pick up what I could. But yeah, USD was like um, like a game changer, just a totally different uh, level of talking about movies and a totally different, um, wow, like window into how the industry works um, at that Was scale, there a little bit I mean, of
0: intimidation when you got there?
1: Oh, totally. I mean, also just like America. Um, it was right. more culture class than I than I initially expected. Um, and a huge city. I mean, I grew up in a town of 20,000 people, you know, um, and then I went to Montreal and I thought, okay, this is the big city in Montreal with like, like half a million people. And then I went to LA and was like, oh no. <laughs> like, what yeah, is this? It. You know? But yeah, it was it was it was incredibly intimidating um and scary and I still have a a lot of discomfort with the technical aspects of filmmaking. It's still like you know, I get a little tight in the chest when I think about um cameras and when I think about post like to this day.
0: So <laughs> Okay. So you're there, you're at USC. Did you find any comfort with other students who were probably in the same boat as you or was it just a very steep learning curve that you just had to kind of start doing it or else you, you'll be held back.
1: Hmm, that's interesting. I think that all of us brought different skills and experience. Um, I think that there were things that I took to with like a lot of comfort, like producing or it was like, right. Oh, I know how to do that. You want me to organize something. Um, and then there were other things that, like I said, I, I feel like I still haven't learned. I think that's probably true for all of us to some degree, that part of it is about identifying and doubling down on your strengths, you know, like, yes, having that exposure to the other things. And I think that makes me a better producer and better, writer but um you know I actually have a distinct memory of um Rob kostachek is that his name who uh who taught cinematography I remember him um I showed up for class early one day and I was like obsessively poring over the cine- cinematography textbook and he sees me and he can see like I'm visibly stressed out you know and he's like he's like do you want to become a cinematographer and I'm like no absolutely not and he's like okay well, like don't worry about this too much you know? <laughs> <laughs> And I appreciated that because I, I had gotten myself like all worked up about like, oh no, if I don't understand the physics of light, you know, mm-hmm. I've got nothing to contribute here
0: <laughs> right, right, right right wow so 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 you're thrown into this world where you have kind of a working knowledge of what it is, and then first year make a movie, make a short yep. film. Mm-hmm. How was your stress level? I mean, were you were you pretending to kind of know what you were doing or, or? um
1: my time in Los Angeles is um the single most exciting and stressful period of my entire life. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, I was I was physically sick from stress. I was um I was exhausted. I was sleeping um I was overcompensating in every possible way I was also I also knew that my time in LA was limited and that if I wanted to stay and if I wanted to be a part of this industry I really had to you know set myself apart um so I was going in with that mentality this is everything I've ever wanted this is as close as I've ever been
0: Right.
1: (laughs) you know um and looking back, that was inevitably going to lead to burnout of all kinds. Um, you know, and I think like I was, I was in my mid twenties and there was a lot I didn't you know know about myself and I didn't have a lot of confidence. Um, and I think that those things make it, make it worse. I feel like I would, um, you know, if I was going back today, I might have a similar experience of a lot of things in terms of events, But I think that I would, um, react to them and internalize them differently.
0: All right. So USC comes and goes, you make a thesis film that you eventually lose. (laughs) And then, and then are you thinking, all right, so I, I, I want to stay and work in film. I need to stay in LA or were you okay just going back?
1: I was absolutely not okay going back. Um, I thought that Hollywood, which until I arrived in L.A., or until I was applying to film, so I honestly don't remember the exact moment that I realized that Hollywood was a physical place. Mm. Um, I thought it was a concept. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I didn't realize that one could stand on Hollywood. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, so so L.A. was was um, incredibly stressful, but like magical that way, you know, it was like, oh, my God, I'm standing here on Hollywood Boulevard, like, whoa. Um, so to leave that, um, to, it seems like it was going back to the beginning um, of being in Montreal and feeling so far apart. And it was, in a way, feeling so far apart um, from Los Angeles. I do feel far away from Los Angeles being here. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wasn't sure how I was going to
0: start over. So, yeah. Okay. Well, and this brings us to your feature film, yeah. Lower Plateau, mm-hmm. which I saw, by the way. Oh, okay. uh, here, Here's a, a, a synopsis on IMDb. Uh, a musician in a rut after missing out on one big chance tries to sort out her life and figure out if there's anything in Montreal worth staying for. So, before you say anything, let me just <laughs> say a couple say me, let me just say a couple things about this movie. So to me this movie was it was like a horror film for me. It it's the horror film that would be if I were to be the protagonist. So everyone everyone fears something. Right? spiders, the dark, death, whatever, right? In this case, I felt like the fear is failure in this movie. It's, it's, uh, and, and how the thought of this failure can affect your daily life. And, you know, it's failure not to be good enough, of, of failure to achieve your full potential or 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 even half of it, right? Um it's also a story about this unseen pain that our protagonist is going through. You know, that thing that kind of nags at you every day, but you think that there's no way of getting rid of it, right? It's a, it's a goal we think we, we it, it might be unachievable and we we sabotage ourselves thinking that this is this is so right it's it's the constant feeling that we're not good enough so why bother right? and i know this because i've felt it i'm not just saying this like just for saying it i've literally i've felt it it's it's that anxiety of not knowing if what you're doing is actually worth it you know thinking that you're wasting your time and energy on something that won't eventually matter in the end um and it's also a story that tells us or shows us how we can slowly overcome it. Um, now, this is your directorial debut, right?
1: Mhm.
0: Done with a very constrained budget, I believe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what What brought you to this story, and how was it? Well, let's start there. What brought you to this story?
1: I think that I wanted to write something, uh, that felt achievable, um, that Mm. felt shootable, um, which is more and more how I approach writing screenplays.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, can I literally figure out how I would pull this off? Um, that was a big, and I really was, I was very much in that world at that time. Montreal is a city of bars and music and um, artists of all kinds. Um, so I was, I was living this story and I was surrounded by this story. Um, and I really wanted to, uh, you know, spend some time in this world because it's one that I love very much. Um, Mm. because I think that it nurtures art over success in the art. Um, and it's something that for Canadians, um, you know, you can really think of as a difference between Toronto, no offense, Toronto, and Montreal is that um, Toronto, like LA, like New York, it's a big city, people. I, I literally remember a friend of mine coming back from uh, moving to Toronto and he visited the bar where I was bartending. I'm like, oh my gosh, great to see you, how's Toronto? And he goes, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm uh, really making progress in my career. And I was like, oh, cool, great. But uh, you know, like, you having fun? And he was like, people don't move to Toronto to have fun. People move to Toronto to make progress in their career. Oh wow. <laughs> um I, listen, okay. I know people who have fun in Toronto. Toronto a great. He sounds um, fun.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> but I think that historically Montreal being a smaller place has um, freed people up from some of the pressure.
0: After after you do the movie, you edit it, you put it out into the world. Mm-hmm. Was that was that therapeutic for you I mean going through this entire process of being in LA having to come back unwillingly right Uh, thinking that you're leaving quote-unquote success behind (laughs) and starting from zero and then you actually get to do a full-length movie
1: I did some big thinking um, in the months when we were planning The Lower Plateau, and uh, my friend Claire and I, and then later my friend Amanda, we spent a very long time um, working on pre-production, much, much more than one might have normally, um, in terms of just reducing the cost, refining the story, um, to try to make it doable with what we had, Um, and while that was all going on, one of the things I was thinking about a lot is, um, do I want to make movies or do I want to be a successful filmmaker? Like, which of these things is my actual priority? Because they're not necessarily the same thing. Right. Um, and I found that the more that I thought about the industry, like, the more that I thought about like, oh, but like, you know, what like, what, what are they looking for in Hollywood? You know, or like this kind of thing, or like what is successful? What's hot, right? This is the kind of shit that we talk about all the time in development in Hollywood. Um, the further I felt from capable. <laughs> okay. Um, and the more that I focused on just like, okay, but like, what if we just like make our project together, you know, what's that going to be like? And what if we try to make it so that the people who are working on it have a good time too, you know, and they're not under wild pressure to, you know, turn out the next, whatever the like, you know, sorry, I'm swearing a lot, but, um, it's all right. at, so, so by the time we got to, um, you know, releasing that movie, yeah, it felt like, uh, it felt like the culmination of something really big. And Claire and I used to talk about this this metaphor of like a, a balloon that we were keeping in the air. And that balloon was the sort of ridiculous sense that we could pull this off, mm. you know, that like while while working full time, you know, that the two of us could put together. And like I said, Amanda, the two of us could put together. Um, she came on a bit later, but like, yeah, um, could put together a feature film for under $50,000 uh, and that it would just exist like just exist at all, just be a finished thing in the world. It felt so ridiculous. Um, And we used to talk about like how, you know, as the crew came on, it was like more and more people are like holding up that balloon. Like we're all kind of like, we're in this, this shared, potentially shared delusion, you know, Mm -hmm. together. (laughs) Um, That we can, we can do this. Um, So yeah, like uh, to see that, you know, kind of like, okay, yeah, we did it. We finished. And that is wild success.
0: And, um, you don't have to answer it if you don't want to, but how yeah. autobiographical is this is this story? How much of yourself did you put into the story?
1: Oh, my gosh. I keep thinking of our different professors and, um, oh, my gosh, I feel bad when I don't remember exactly who said what. But one of the producing staff, at, uh, one of the producing uh, faculty at um, at USC said something about believing that every great director only really has one story. Mm-hmm. Um. Not that I'm. I'm not calling myself a great director, but he's saying if even if Steven Spielberg only has <laughs> one story, you know what I mean, then why should I have 25? Like, right. um, yeah. Like I'm, that's all you really have, right? Is is the things that resonate with you, and they resonate with you because they're relatable to you. Um. Mm-hmm. So most of it. I mean, most of it was about. Um, if it wasn't me directly, it was people very close to me.
0: Okay. All right. And like I said, I think, and this is me thinking and. Maybe knowing some of your work, that this 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 is probably something soothing to your soul and soothing to that, um, like I said, that empty hole that you had when leaving L.A. and thinking, "Hey, I'm probably not gonna do this again ever in my life." But you actually did, and and you're oh, still yeah. moving forward. I mean, you have you have things in the works right now, right?
1: There was definitely a point where I thought to myself, like, I might never be on another film set you know, like how, how the heck would I ever get back Yeah. Um, on a film set in a meaningful way? Um, so yeah, to be able to do this and we've been lucky so far to take some first steps towards other projects. So yeah.
0: Awesome. All right. So, so in the works, you have a short film coming up, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about it?
1: Totally. So, um, it's not a secret. (laughs) Um, it's called, it's called Leah 19. Um, we've already shot parts of it. Uh, we, um, but then we were lucky enough to get a production grant that's going to help us um, do a little bit more. So really pumped about that. And therefore also publicly committed to finishing. (laughs) Um, but yeah, Leah 19 is a short film about a crisis counselor who gets a call from a teenager who's in a domestic violence situation. Um, and she has to kind of navigate the call, uh, which has like, a really uncertain outcome. Um, and it's kind of trying to uh, get people thinking about the limitations of support services um, when it comes to facing complex social issues. And uh, who are the people, you know, who um, both who make those calls and who answer them?
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, well, in keeping with, with that uh, theme, um, I've seen a lot of your posts on Facebook regarding a lot addiction, of addiction yeah. <laughs> and addiction and drugs and and safe use um so do you do you actually work on these uh um i don't safe drug use places i don't i don't even know yeah
1: to so, no totally um so first of all i there's a whole cluster of services that fall under harm reduction services um I'm what's called a street worker. So um, it's a form of outreach work uh, in which you try to get to know um, vulnerable youth in a particular like neighborhood or area in order to be like a resource to them. Um, And mostly youth who are street involved or at risk of street involvement. So um, I've been doing that since late 2016. Um, I love it. Uh, I'm now um, the coordinator of the program. Um, So this is actually how I probably spend like hours wise, probably how I spend um, most of my hours is working on things related to that field
0: okay so so you're you also work as a counselor
1: um so what i do is i'm a person who's just kind of like available as a resource sometimes that means that chatting with youth like about what they're going through sometimes it means connecting them to other resources and they need maybe long-term counseling or um some kind of program um But yeah, like one of the purposes of street work is to try to be a liaison um, between individuals and some of these like, you know, kind of like larger programs and institutions that can be hard to access.
0: Okay. All right. And what made you start working in this line of work?
1: Um, So before I even came to USC, I I was really interested in harm reduction and in frontline work in a a very different context. Um, I had worked as a resident advisor when I was working in residences at McGill. Um, and there you were like a similar sort of position, again, different context, um, but you were a resource person for youth. They could knock on your door. They could ask you for things. And I loved it. Um, and it's not because it's a university residence that you don't encounter some, you know, um, complex situations. Um, so I found myself like when I when I saw the job description for street work um, at Head & Hands, which was an organization I had worked with on and off through the years, um, I was like, that is a thing that I want to do. Um, like those are the youth that I want to. Connect with. Um, those are the skills that I want to practice. So, um, yeah, I started learning more about it. I got to know Sarah, Sarah, who was a street worker before me, and um, I learned more and more. And uh, yeah, here I am.
0: <laughs> okay. Now that term, harm reduction.
1: Yeah what does, harm that, reduction. what does that entail? Harm reduction is an approach to um to health and to public health policy. It comes to us from the world of uh, people who do sex work and people who use drugs. Um it's a you know, a way that people from those communities use to mitigate um, some of the harms and some of the risks of certain behaviors um, while they were being persecuted by the state. Um so like under Prohibition, under the war on drugs, um, the drug market is particularly toxic and it's hard to access certain supplies that makes using drugs more dangerous. Um, And harm reduction is like a group of practices that that was sort of born out of that, um, as well as just an attitude towards substances and substance use.
0: Okay. Because I remember when I was a kid, I grew up with the slogan, uh, just say no, right? Mm -hmm. Which is basically just turn your back on drugs and don't even think about it. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, I remember uh, marijuana was also uh, a gateway drug. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so, how does that fit into all this? This harm reduction is—is—is that—is that does that not work?
1: So one of the things that's really hard for um, people in a North American context to understand, um, because we've lived all our lives under prohibition um, and during the war on drugs, um, is that there's a there's a way to relate to these issues completely differently. Um, So to just like, like zoom all the way out for a second. Um, Let's talk about for a moment, like what is a drug? Um, Because I think that we have a tendency to treat that as if it's a scientific category and it isn't. Um, There are things that we consider to be drugs in our culture that are not considered drugs in other cultures and vice versa. Um, Mm -hmm. It's hard to find any one unifying set of properties that all drugs you know, display. So, um, so that's the first thing. A lot of our ideas about drugs come to us from the war on drugs. They come to us from the Controlled Substances Act, which has its roots in direct racist policies. It was brought about to target certain communities. Mm-hmm. Um, so, a lot of the messaging that we saw in our views was um, coming out of a space of of trying to vilify certain communities, certain groups. Um, And if you want to learn more about that and about, like, the Nixon era, um, this is something that somebody, um, John Ehrlichman, did an interview in 1994 with Vanity Fair. We talked about this, like, very directly, you know, and he was like, um, we use marijuana to vilify hippies and we use uh, heroin to vilify black people. And we did that because those were our political enemies. We knew that we were lying when we did it. Um, So there's that. Okay. About, like, our ideas about drugs. Um, On the other side is this idea about addiction. Right. So, you know, we all know people who have struggled um, with a dependence on a substance. We all know people who have um, complicated or self-destructive relationships with substances. And a lot of the time the the war on drugs, people will be like, that's what we're worried about. That's what we're trying to prevent.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: But that's that's not necessarily the case. Um, So addiction is another really complicated word. It doesn't really mean anything consistent. Some people use it to mean someone who's using drugs habitually. Some people use it to mean um, a substance that will produce withdrawal if you stop using it suddenly. Um, some people use it to mean a, I'm putting air quotes here, you can't see me because it's a podcast, but a psychological right. dependent. Um, I'm putting those air quotes because I want to challenge that idea. So one of the things that we don't think about, right, is, um, let's take the example of glasses. I'm a glasses wearer. Um, am I addicted to my glasses if I depend on them to see well? if this is a tool that I need in order to function, is that Mm -hmm. fairly described as an addiction? Um, So whether that that reason is psychological or physical, um, I question that idea. Um, So those are some of the things that that come to mind for me. Um, The other thing is that like, uh, there's not a one-to-one relationship between consuming substances and becoming dependent on them, whether physically or psychologically. Um, that That is a myth, right? A lot of the drugs that are illegal to consume on the street are legal to prescribe. Um, and people use them and stop using them all the time, every day in hospitals around the country. Um, we still use cocaine medically. We use heroin and morphine um, and fentanyl medically. Uh, we use stimulants medically, all of these things. Um, so I think that unless we break those those ideas down, it becomes really hard to understand the insidiousness of the war on drugs and like what it's done to sort of like frame our whole mindset um, about substances and substance use. With that kind
0: of answer? Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's that's that, that's good. Um, what what I what I would say is this is me playing devil's advocate. Sure. Uh, you said that example with 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 the glasses. Yeah. Um, but putting on your glasses mm-hmm. is not going to harm you. Um, okay.
1: So let's let's talk about harm. W- when you
0: okay. Um, yes. let's talk about harm. Do it. Um, Do it.
1: How we frame harm is a question of uh, political will. Um, When we talk about the harm of substances, I want to mention a couple of things. First of all, making substances illegal makes them more harmful to consume. That's just an automatic. Um, That market can't be regulated. People use in secret. Uh, They're not able to access testing facilities because of the war on drugs um, and because the law prevents it. So um, if we're talking about harm um, from using substances, there's that. The other thing is we don't make laws based on what's harmful. Um, alcohol is one of the most toxic substances that people consume. Um, when mixed with other substances, it becomes even more toxic. Many, many people die from alcohol poisoning um, and from uh, sclerosis. Don't know that toxicity is the driving factor behind the war on drugs either. Um, so, yeah, like the glasses example, you could say like it doesn't have harmful effects. But the other thing about substances is like they could have beneficial effects right? All of the drugs that we take. So I'm on Concerta right now. Um, Concerta has uh, pros and cons on my body. Um, but I use it because the pros outweigh the cons. Um, mm-hmm. And that's my choice. Um, so I think we need to leave it to people to decide for them um, what the pros and cons are of us using substances. Let's take, let's take eye surgery. If eye surgery was made illegal tomorrow, it would become more dangerous, right? People would be doing it, um, you know. On the, we'd be getting black market eye surgeries, and people would be getting weird right. infections. Um, mm-hmm. And this is exactly the same way.
0: Yeah, it's like abortion.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Like I mean, and those those issues are are linked in a really important way. That's why I include, you know, the work of people who do sex work when I'm talking about um, harm reduction, because it's a lot about bodily autonomy. It's about which states are, oh, sorry, which bodies are marginalized by the state. Um, who the state believes has a right to control their body and who they think does not.
0: So how, do, how can we start to turn this around? Because this is a society thing. I mean, this is something that's yeah. been ingrained in our society for mm-hmm. a very, very long time. Um, and in order to to start talking about it, and I mean, I'm not even make laws, just, just mm-hmm. to start talking about it without that stigma is going to be yeah. uh, a, a long way to go.
1: Um, Absolutely. Uh, I think there's a a few things that come to mind. Um, uh, First of all, if we're talking about, um, it depends on what we're talking about turning around. If we're talking about decreasing the number of overdoses, then um, three immediate suggestions, which are UBI, which is universal basic income, um, housing for all, uh, housing that is free at the point of access, um, free at the point of distribution um, for people who need it. And uh, decriminalizing substances are three things that come to mind, like off the bat, um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: that would decrease the number of overdoses. Um, if we're talking about reducing the stigma, that's a longer process that happens through education. And again, decriminalization. As long as something is criminalized, um, I don't see any reason why uh, we'd be able to end
0: the stigma surrounding it. So these safe houses, these safe mm-hmm. drug use places, yeah, do you, do you supply the drugs or... Can, can um, they bring the drugs there or how, how, how does that work?
1: Uh, there are two different programs that um, I think fall into what you're talking about in Canada. Um, so those are safe supply programs. So that's when um, you're getting a pharmaceutical level um, product uh, from, you know, from the government. Uh, so you can get a heroin prescription or a morphine prescription, a lot of Um There's a few of those around Canada. Uh, we would do it with alcohol in some places um, because if you're a street involved person, um, who uses alcohol. Maybe you're drinking things that are not designed for consumption like uh, hand sanitizer. Um, so there are places where people can go to get um, alcohol that's designed for consumption. Um, the other thing is supervised consumption uh, spaces, which I think is is what you're talking about. So in those spaces, generally speaking, people bring their own substances um, and then they're, what they're doing there is they're using um, with company, basically, um, and in their original form, like, these are people's homes, you know what I mean? Like, in the, in the way that this happens organically, I mean, it happens across the US too, even though it's not legal, is these are people from the community who are saying, I would rather you come use at my house, where I can help you if you OD, than you use by yourself, which is where the vast majority of overdoses happen. So, um, Yeah, I think that, uh, yeah, that's what those programs are for. So it's like more of like an official place. You can come and it's like publicly everybody knows about it. Um, And you can come and use your substances. And there's people there uh, with naloxone and people there who are medically trained. um, So they can get help um, and provide help if it's needed.
0: Okay. Um, And then this opioid crisis that's hitting or that we have here in the United States, Mm -hmm. is it the same in Canada Or have you seen a reduction there because of the safe... uh,
1: Um, Harm reduction services do make a difference. Uh, There was a study a couple of years ago from BC that showed um, how many more people might have died had it not been for harm reduction services in British Columbia. And they really are um, both a leader on oppressive uh, laws and policies um, and a leader um, in providing harm reduction services. Uh, Vancouver is basically the birthplace of the war on drugs. Uh, A lot of people think that it's in the US, but it's in Canada. And, um, yeah, uh, there, so there has been a reduction, but uh, there are still thousands of Canadians dying every year uh, from uh, opioid-related oh. overdoses. Yeah. I just, I just to address that for a second, you didn't ask this question yet, but um, it's going to come up, I Good. feel like, when we talk about the movie. Uh, <laughs> so when people talk about the opioid overdose, like, that's another one of these, like, misnomers. Um, what they're referring to is the dramatic rise in um, opioid-related overdoses that began in the mid-2010s. Uh, really mm-hmm. began to make the news in the 2010s. Um, a lot of those overdoses started happening um, because of fentanyl poisoning. So this is situations where people thought they were using another drug, and fentanyl ended up being in it. So there are people who intentionally use fentanyl. That's true, um, but that's not necessarily um, that doesn't necessarily account for all of those numbers. A lot of people are also um, heroin users or diluted users or even Xanax users um, or cocaine users who accidentally. Um, overdose because uh, the drugs were tainted and even when we're talking about people overdosing on fentanyl um, a lot of the time that can be accounted for um, by the uneven supply so when i get my concerta pills at the pharmacy i know exactly how much active substance is in every pill if i were to buy that same pill on the street i would have no way to be sure so sometimes when people are buying fentanyl it's like unpredictable um, as to potency and that also leads to a lot of deaths
0: i i still need to read up on this whole thing i i feel so in the dark uh so and i I thank you i thank you for 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 your insights uh because honestly if if it wasn't for for some of your posts i i wouldn't know any of that oh
1: it's good to
0: know yeah i appreciate it so 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 at least you reached one person (laughs) great good good (laughs) all right so how about if we move into our next segment yeah let's do it let's go into the feature film crisis okay so i want to i want to speak first because i think you're gonna have a lot of things to
1: to say
0: about this movie um first i want to say i'm sorry uh, for, <laughs> for making you watch this film, okay? Um, oh, no. <laughs> uh, so here's, here's a, a, a brief um, synopsis from, from IMDb. So three stories about the world of opiates uh, collide. You have the cop who is uh, posing as a drug trafficker arranging stuff with the cartel between Canada and the U.S., an architect who's recovering from oxycodone addiction, who tracks down the truth behind her son's involvement in narcotics, and a university professor who's battling unexpected revelations about his research employer. Uh, This movie was directed by Nicholas Jarrick, It was written by Nicholas Jarek. And is, it, it, it stars a whole lot of people who are pretty famous. You have Gary Oldman, Evangeline Lilly, mm-hmm. Army Hammer, Greg Kinnear, Luke Evans, Michelle Rodriguez, and the list goes on and on and on and on. Um, all right. So I think this is a movie that has a big crisis of identity if you want to put it that way. Um, because I don't know if you saw my name here. Um, did you see my name in the settings here? Your corrective oh. <laughs> keys. This is my name. <laughs> so my name is Taken yeah. plus Insider plus Narc. All right. And that's that's what I think this movie was trying to do. It was like... Uh, yep, so so, so picture this. this. You think of Taken, right? You think of Taken. And it meets... The Insider meets Narc. Boom, and I think it fails on all. Fr- I'm I'm sorry. I, I don't want to be. I don't I don't I don't want to, you know, drag this movie down, because um, I know how difficult it is to make movies, but this movie was just juggling so many things at the same time, and it wasn't even doing that well. Um, you have you have the story. Of the person who's tracking down her son. And then you have a a political, a very interesting political story, right? Like the insider. And then you have the other one with the cop. And that version of the movie is like kind of like action-y as well. But it just doesn't mesh at all. Um, I... I've, for the life of me I try to I try to be open-minded and say okay this is gonna this is gonna tie up really nice we have very cool players in this movie uh, let's try to make it work and by the end it 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 ends with a coda and I don't which doesn't even have anything to do with the movie I think um it's pretending to be this movie where... It's quote unquote educating us about the opiate crisis and where drugs come from and how it affects some people and how big pharma is is uh, uh, to blame for a bunch of stuff, but it's it's basically that. I mean, it's 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 bullet points. It's this and this and this and this and this, and it doesn't focus on one particular thing that makes the story cogent. And by the end, you're left with nothing with emptiness with all right well i guess i saw gary oldman be a scientist i think who uh, i don't know doesn't have a job or does he um i i i i again i'm so so sorry i made you watch this movie but it's a cool thing because now i have you here to talk about all the things that they could have done right so before yeah. we go into any spoilers, um, what are your thoughts?
1: I, I'm I sure that Nicholas Jarecki is a very well-intentioned person. Um, but if this movie was a physical object, I would set it on fire. Um, <laughs> it's how I feel about it, uh, basically. Um, I was actually, like, when I got on this call with you, I was in the middle of making a TikTok video that was going to be... Um, five things you could do to learn about drugs and the drug war that are better than watching crisis. And <laughs> the fifth one was going to be like, just like do nothing because you're better off not watching. I think this is, um, I think this movie acts of actively um, makes you know less and understand less about drugs because it is actively pushing um, false information. Uh, and it's doing it with like a pro police agenda, which is, um, wild to me. So, nice. uh, yeah, I'm pretty much, but yeah, like I was saying, like going back to the art for a second, like, let's just talk about like how it's made. Um, first of all, like you said, uh, there's like 12 people, um, trying to star in this movie. Uh, Arnie Hammer sort of manages to do it. Um, it's two hours long for no good reason. Um, You know, with drugs and with movies, I feel like more is not necessarily better. You Mm. know, sometimes you want to, you know, pace yourself. Um, I use three basic criteria to decide if I like a movie or not. And those are, uh, does it make sense? This movie did not make sense to me um, Mm. on any level. Uh, It's implications about the structure of organized crime Um, Its geography didn't make sense, it didn't make sense to me emotionally. Um, I did not care if any of these people died or just stopped being in the movie. Um, Mm -hmm. It wouldn't have made that big of a difference. Um, So there was that. Uh, The second thing is, like, did I feel anything? Um, I felt nothing. The only character I cared about in this entire movie was um, Arnie Hammer's little sister who is using opioids. Um, And that kid seems like they're having a hard time. Um, and I would have liked to know more about that person because that person um, is the actual, you know, heart of this uh, of story. Uh, most of the people involved in the quote unquote story um, of the drug war uh, have more in common with her than with any of the other people um, in this movie. Uh, and then finally, like, did it surprise me in any way? And no, absolutely nothing about the plot of this story Uh, surprised me perhaps the audacity um surprises me uh but otherwise um no it was it was incredibly predictable uh how this was going to um how this was going to end up so i think that uh yeah that's a big thumbs down for me (laughs) in case it wasn't clear uh yeah me and crisis we don't we don't get along
0: all right so let's let's head into into Spoilers, because we we have yep. we have something to to talk about here. All right, so this is the spoilers section. You have been warned. Okay, so what about what about Army Hammer's sister who was was so compelling to you? Because I I think her story was thrown in there to just create drama for him, right? It was 100%. just like a. Let's just, just, just throw this little thing in there, right? Um, let's But give isn't, him some, but isn't some... that
1: so often how we relate to the stories of people who use drugs, right? Um, mm. We talk about how hard it is for everybody around them. And I'm just like, well, what about this person? What happened to her? You know, right. like what's going on in her life? Also, her dynamic with her brother is frankly abusive. Um, and this is the kind of thing that ends with people who use drugs on the streets being abused because people see movies like this and they think, well, that's what those like junkies in air quotes deserve, is to be tied up with zip ties um, and confined against their will, um, and that's right. how we save them from themselves. Um, so to me, that was that was beyond. That is violence. Um, what they're what they were depicting there. Um, so I wanted to hear I wanted to hear her story. Um, you know, when we when we first meet her, uh, she's virtually catatonic. Um, she's like barely responsive. Uh, and we never find out, you know, like what's up with her beyond I don't know. She uses drugs. Lots of people use drugs and are not in that state. So mm-hmm. what happened to that kid? Um. Anyway, and we don't we don't get to find out because, like you said, apparently that's the least interesting aspect of this story. Um. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it was just like a. Uh... I don't know, a a parentheses in his life and let's let's just put this aside. Let's, let's add it just for drama and then let's, let's move on. But Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, her story, her story isn't concluded. uh, And it's just left up in the air when she makes that call. And that's it. That's, that's all we, that's all we know about her. Unfortunately, I, I, I don't, in my mind, I don't have the means to to tell you, okay, they, they could have done this this other way because that's like you said, that's the way it's been portrayed in movies for so long that you think, well, what are the, the steps that these that her mom, for example, could have taken that would not involve violence because she was she was in a hospital, right? Um, committed I'm, I'm assuming and getting quote-unquote help right but she left on her own will mm-hmm. because she wanted to access drugs right yeah so in that situation what what would be the best the best way to go about it
1: i mean that i think the movie only gives us like the bare bones of everybody's relationship with one another so it's, it's really hard to say based on that um But there's an amazing episode of Crackdown, the podcast that I mentioned, um, where they talk about um, a person who has a substance use issue and a very supportive family. Um, And they talk about the various steps and how it is is absolutely still a struggle, but nobody is zip-tying anybody on that podcast episode. (laughs) Um, People are talking Mm. to one another. People are trying to build space for one another. People are absolutely, they're setting boundaries and they're saying no sometimes. Um, but they're also, uh, rejecting the idea of tough love and absolutely rejecting the idea of violence as a way to help people, quote unquote, help people.
0: Right. Right. Okay. Um, so what did you think about the structure of this movie? Because like I said, I I thought they were
1: trying to do kind of a traffic thing. Do you remember that movie? Late nineties movie about cocaine trade? Yeah. Yeah. I do not remember that movie. You're either. talking
0: about Academy Award winning.
1: Yes. I'm, I'm referring to Academy Award winning feature film, Traffic. Um, was like, yes. You know, that little known. Um, and uh, at the time, that was a very successful movie. This is a cheapened version of that on every level. Um, on every level. But I think that's what they were trying for. Um, yeah. This was like traffic on a budget as well as a budgeted Im- imagination. Um and like, it's funny that you listed all those actors. Like, listen, God bless every one of them. Each one of them has been in amazing movies at some point or another in their career, but my gosh, it came off like a hodgepodge of B-list stars giving B-list performances. Yeah. Um, Annie Har- Arnie Hammer at some point is like laughable. He's so attractive. He's so attractive. <laughs> he's, so, he's got an incredible voice. He's very masculine Wait, can um, we
0: can we still say that he's attractive?
1: Oh, true. Um he's also possibly a cannibal rapist. So Okay. Um yeah, I mean it's... I think I think that one of the complicated truths of life is that some people are aesthetically pleasing, horrible people. And that's right. a weird thing. You know, so he yeah. may be one of those people. Um in this context, he is just a horrible actor. Um and my favorite point I think was when his DEA buddy tells him that he has two weeks to, as far as I can tell, end the fentanyl trade, which is hilarious. And he kind of thinks about it. He mulls it over and he goes, uh, yeah, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I, think yeah, I can do that. I can do that. You can know, do
0: that. Know,
1: as if you'd asked him to help you move this weekend. You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think I could pull that off.
0: Nah, he's, he has it under control. That's Yeah, that's he's, all, he's all
1: over it. And then when mm-hmm. he gets upstaged by a single mom who started investigating last week, that's hilarious to me you know? I'm like, so hold on. Not only that,
0: she is able to get to the head of (laughs) this entire thing. No, no,
1: no, but here's the thing, Richard. The thing is that, according to this movie, the mafia only has two levels of operation, and those are high school kids and then mob boss.
0: Okay, that is the
1: entire drug system, so I actually can't, I do have to say that I think that I, too, would be able to get all the way to the top if that was actually the system, because apparently all you have to do is like bully some like twenty one year old white boys, mm. um, just like break into their apartments and kind of shout at them a bit, and uh, they will lead you directly to the head of the mafia. Nobody told Arnie Hammer that he's devoted months to breaking. Yeah, yeah, into of, course. <laughs> yeah of, course, of course, yeah.
0: He's 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 been on this on this uh, <laughs> on this trail for how long? Right. right, right,
1: right. Yeah.
0: And then okay, so so all right, so. That's that's one side of it. And then number number two is Evangeline Lilly, who is an addict, mm-hmm. right? And she's dealing with grief because her son was apparently killed by these. Okay, so you uh, wanna talk about cats. something
1: else that I think is, is actually like fucking insulting about this movie and like wrong. Um mm. The only person, like, the only victims that we see of the war on drugs are um, people who were, like, involved in the trade or who were, like, killed by people who are, like, in the drug trade. We don't see um, the impact on people who are using drugs. A lot of people who are selling drugs are also using drugs. I'm not saying that there aren't people who die in the violence of, like, you know, the drug industry. Um, But the thousands of people we're talking about, when we say that thousands of people are dying, are not people, are not kids getting jumped in alleys. And then also, oh my gosh, my favorite part, I think was, um, was Evangeline. No, there's so many favorite parts of this movie. Evangeline Lily describing her son's murder. And she says, so they knocked him out cold and then forced him to swallow. They knocked him out cold. And then, okay. Okay. Um, I'm not sure if that works, but, uh, say it's true. That's not how most people who are affected by the drug war die. Um, and mm-hmm. that need for like an innocent victim. My son doesn't do drugs. My son doesn't even smoke weed. Shut up, man. Shut up. Like kids shouldn't be dying from overdoses, whether or not, like that's not the point. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's a misrepresentation. Also, like, how did you shoot a movie that is set in Detroit with no black characters? What's up with that? Yeah. Sometimes, I mean, maybe a small thing and all of this, but I'm like, no, it's not. No, it's not Richard. And I'm going to tell you why. Because, like I said, the drug war is designed specifically to target BIPOC communities. So when we are shut out of these narratives, now that it's a problem, the lives that we're worried about, it's very clear whose lives um, people are worried about here, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And it's these little white boys who go to private school and they play hockey. Um, And we're less worried even about the sister who's using opioids. We're less worried about her. We're certainly not worried about people of color in this community. And apparently there are no people of color working towards solutions of any kind. But there are people of color ready and waiting to pay- play drug dealers. And I noticed Michelle Rodriguez and Kid Cudi, and I have a feeling that they were cast in this movie to avoid that specific criticism. Because yeah, that's what I was just going to say, yeah. Yeah, if it wasn't for them being on screen for less than five minutes collectively, I would say that the only places they showed people of color in this movie was when they were homeless or they were selling drugs. And I don't think that there is any dishonor in selling drugs or being homeless, I'm just saying that Hollywood is real selective about their messages.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, but Michelle Rodriguez was there; she was the boss, right?
1: I mean, she yeah, heard she had her four lines. What did she say? I don't even remember what she said. She looked concerned. I remember that she looked yeah, yeah, a lot of stress in her face. You know, but yeah, it, uh, you
0: know, this this movie is full of of that of people having uh, uh, faces of constipation, right? Oh my God! Angelina's
1: Lily's performance of an addict in a support group. There are some people for whom sobriety works. There are some people for whom those groups work. Those groups are ineffective for between eighty-five and ninety-five percent of people. But Hollywood goes to them over and over again to be like, "All oh, you got to do, all oh, you got to, what are you telling me that you're you're dependent on drugs and you're you know you're housing you're housing insecure and you have a low income and you've lived trauma? But if you would just turn up for the coffee and the donuts at one of these groups." And you know, wring your hands like Evangeline Lilly, then you too could be sober. Just like that.
0: Well so, it's yeah. it's it's one it's one of those things that's also been ingrained in our heads. I mean that's what we also see everywhere. Yep. Okay? You that's, very that's rarely the story see that... a
1: different response in a in a Hollywood movie or T V show. You very rarely see a different response to substitute.
0: Right. Now, with her character, after she after she learns uh, about what happened to her son. She, she was an addict or she is an addict. would she resort to using after having this this trauma uh, in might. her life?
1: um some people might like I think that definitely like a big loss can um, trigger people who have been uh, you know struggling with sobriety to to use again any kind of like big emotional event. Could, but then there are some people who have um, shifted their coping mechanisms in different ways or, um, you know, healed from various things. And then if they still don't want to be using, um, then they might be able to not do that. Um, there are people who, you know, also like using is something people can do for a while and then stop for a while and then do for a while. Um, and that's, again, like a pattern that we don't recognize. Right. Like it can be like that sometimes substance use the coping mechanism. A lot of the substances that are listed in the Controlled Substances Act, um, I mean, there's thousands of them, but amongst them, let's say, are various substances that other cultures have used for healing, um, including in times of grief. So when we're talking about mm. something like, um, you know, uh, traditional ceremonies around like, say like ayahuasca or like magic mushrooms, um, there can be a lot of healing in our substance use as well, which is, again, look side people don't really think about so
0: much. All right, what 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 about this third uh, third the third rail of this movie which oh, is the
1: rape apologist story yes let's talk <laughs> about the rape culture story um so I actually before we leave Evangeline Lily I just want to stop on and like I get it right some people are like Liz, I just want to watch a movie but please can we just like very briefly touch on um, homophobia uh, in the scene where she goes into um, the club? And it's supposed to be like, ooh, C D club. Kids do drugs here. Kids come here to die, you know? Of course. And so yeah. we immediately, like, see two women kissing. And I'm like, ah, of course. The CD underworld populated with queer people as it is. That was just such a, um, like, it felt like such a, like, boomer who's never done drugs theme. Where I was like, okay, oh, this is like a strobe light, you know? And I'm like, are, are, they, are the kids still rocking strobe lights? Like, okay, um, but <laughs> it was anyway. It was hilarious. to Me, it was like a yeah, um, a strange vision. Well, that's the yeah. only.
0: That's the only place where where uh, queer people uh, kiss. Yeah, that's that's yes. it.
1: Mm-hmm. In the CD, the CD underworld of, uh, yeah, of Detroit. <laughs> um, yeah, and then uh, and then Gary Oldman um, doing his best to create substance in um, a truly unsubstantial character. Um, again, like each each one of these storylines, and um, let's go back to Arnie Hammer after and talk about the police, actually, because um, each of these storylines is actually harmful in its own special way. Um, two things that jump out from Gary Oldman. Um, first of all, let's talk about what... Ad- we, we talked about what addictive means. Um, and those mice, I... That's supposed to, I guess, imply that, like, oh, this substance is quote-unquote more addictive, so then you die from it more? Again, it's, misunderstanding... It's not, it's not more
0: addictive. It's super-duper ultra-addictive.
1: Super-duper ultra-addictive, which I yeah. assume they have some kind of scale, you know, and at one hand, is like, mildly addictive or not addictive, the other hand, is super-duper ultra-addictive, the cloneron or whatever the fuck they called it. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, that's not, again, like, addiction not being a science word, not really something that, like... Uh, you know, I feel like would, would make sense to measure in that way. Um, I mentioned Bruce Alexander earlier, and Bruce Alexander is a Canadian scientist who, in the 70s, ran an experiment called Rat Park, and where he was challenging exactly this way of testing substances and exactly this concept of addiction. So that was 50 years ago. Um, and what he did was he was like, okay, so generally how people would test substances for, quote-unquote, addictiveness is they would put a rat in a cage with two droppers of water. One of them had regular water. One of them had cocaine and water. The rat would go to the cocaine one over and over and over again. The scientists would say, look, cocaine has magical properties. And Bruce Alexander was like, this is a stupid experiment. So he built something that he called Rat Park. And what he did was he made this giant cage and he put multiple rats in it. And he put things for them to play with and he put fun food for them to eat and a wheel. And, you know, and they would have sex and they would cuddle and they would, you know, have a good time. And those rats were not more interested in the cocaine water than they were in the plain water. Um, Mm. So from that what you will, but I thought it was kind of hilarious to specifically reference the whole rat situation. Um, So there was that bit. Uh, And like, listen, do pharmaceutical companies play a role in all of this? Yes, in the sense that capitalism is an exploitative system. All Mm -hmm. capital is generated through exploitation. So that's um, the drug industry, but that is also the sugar industry and the oil industry and the clothing industry and the construction industry and on and on and on. Because that's where money comes from, right? Is exploiting people. Um, So uh, this is just one more form of that. If we want to tackle that, we have to end capitalism. Um, Even ending the drug trade will not end that. So there's that. Thing number three, I love that the writer took the time to sneak in an exaggerated claim of sexual harassment um, and gave the character time to say, well, I was drunk and I was heartbroken and she misunderstood and this and that. And I'm like, beautiful, beautiful. Well done. Well done. That's my alma mater, by the way. Um, I, I went to school. Oh, really? Yep.
0: Oh, Um, they all started
1: my doctor's office, which is hilarious. Nice. Um, Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so that was, that was really, that was some murky, uh, values for me. And I really question the supply side argument. Um, when people like when people blame the fact that drugs exist, because like I said, um, people use substances across all cultures. People have used substances for thousands of years. Um, it's actually like a very natural and normal part of like human behavior to use substances. So it's not the fact that they exist. Um, and to analyze the fact that people use them or become dependent on them without talking about any of the stuff I mentioned around poverty and housing discrimination and pain, you know, what are we even talking about?
0: Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, this, this, this movie, I don't know. It was trying to take this this theme that mm-hmm. could have could have been uh, a little enlightening for for people who are ignorant, uh, and it just muddled the water so much. It it um it it also tries to make it cool. the the, mm-hmm. the army hammer part of it is supposed to be like this cool. Yep. Drug busting thing, yeah, um, and it just it it feels wrong. Even even watching it, not even thinking about the movie, yeah. but while while you're watching it, it it just feels like maybe this doesn't go here. So uh, a fun this...
1: um, a fun couple of facts about uh, the war on drugs. Um, so the first prohibition laws in were like I said earlier were in Canada in um, so the early 1900s, um, and it was banning opium um, as a as a way of uh, as an excuse to discriminate against the Chinese community. The Chinese mm. people who were coming to Canada and uh, the government of Canada wanted to get rid of them and they were like, we can use opium as a pretext. Three years later, 1911, um, they realized that uh, they were having a hard time enforcing this law. So that's when they added the right to search and seizure. So it was 1911 and it was again specifically to target Chinese people. And over the next couple of decades, they would deport um, thousands of Chinese people by this law, right? I don't know numbers, I'm saying thousands. 75% of the people who were prosecuted under this law were Chinese. That is a fact. Um, we know, like I said, that uh, later again in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, the same kind of thing was used. Um, all these people of color are using drugs. We're going to use that to um, break up the communities, arrest people, um, you know, all of these things, disenfranchise them um, in various ways. All through the year, so in 1911, the reason I brought that up, when they said they didn't have um, the ability to enforce it, that was the first time that what they did was they expanded the rights of the police. And that's been a pattern, right, over time, that funding for hmm. the police and the expansion of the police have been kind of um, justified based on the drug war, on this, this, con- this quote-unquote constant threat um, of, of drugs to America and to Canada. Um, so it's, like, particularly disgusting, like, whereas, like, we know that actually what that results in, you know, every 25 seconds, an American is arrested for possession. You know, like, that's that's ridiculous. Um, and I'm sure you know that, like, America has a disproportionate amount of, of world prisoners. Um, something like 5% of the population, but 25% of its imprisoned people, um, a disproportionate number of whom are people of color. So you start to see how, um, why would we glorify the police in all of this when the police are the enforcement arm of corrupt policy that created this situation in the first place? There's a special irony for me in these sorts of movies being like, these are our heroes. Um, No, 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 these are the people who created the problem so that they could buy those big trucks and whatever that they were driving around. Um, A brief note here about it's always hilarious. To get a glimpse into how Americans see Canada, Um, Mm -hmm. I'm just like loving that they're in Detroit, which is right across from where I grew up, from Windsor, Ontario. Okay, Okay. Nobody has a French accent where I grew up. Nobody has a Francophone accent where I grew up. But the Canadians do in this movie. Fine. Hilarious. All Canadian gangs (laughs) unified under one title. We have many gangs. Just like we have our own shit up here. It seems like Americans don't realize that. It snows constantly, like we're in the land of Narnia. There's just a blanket of snow everywhere. As soon as you hit, they even say in the movie, "the snowy, unprotected border of Canada." And I'm like, okay, okay. I mean, it's summertime sometimes, but all right. Um, And then they finally get to Canada, and they have this confrontation with the mob, whatever, whoever that is. And the DEA is there, and I'm like, I'm not proud of our police but we do have our own police in this country. Like we, we do have our whole own legal system. Um, we do work with Americans, but it's just, anyway, it's just funny to see Americans just, yeah, sure. Why not? The 51st state, come on in. <laughs> like-
0: how, how, how much, how much of, of the drug policy here in the United States um, goes back and forth between us and, and Canada?
1: Um, I'm not sure. Like, so I've really just started, like, I'm dipping my toe into the history of all of this. Like, I'm starting to understand the origins of it, um, because I've always been told that it was the Americans pushing this, that it was the Reagan administration um, and the Nixon administration before that that pushed this onto Canada. Um, but that's one of the things Canada does. Canada loves to blame its racism. On, we're just like, oh, we just learned from America. We're just doing what Americans are doing. It's their fault. They're so big. They're going to come shoot us if we don't be racist like them. Um, there's no evidence that that's the case, though. Um, so, yeah, I uh, I'll be able to let you know a little bit more in a few months, but still learning.
0: All right. Well, uh, I want to talk just a little bit about just the the movie as as just as it's made, the editing mm-hmm. and all of that, um, because you 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 said it's trying to be traffic. <sighs> But tra- traffic is edited in a way that makes sense. Uh-huh. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this 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 movie is just one feels. one of the differences. <laughs> this movie feels so disjointed. Yeah. It, it 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 jumps back and forth. um yep. it, At moments that you say, well, wait 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 did did we finish that other thing that we were doing? Sometimes it we It just didn't. feels like sometimes we absolutely had not. <laughs> exactly. And and then so you go, okay, all right, sure, let's let's move on to this. Yeah. And then they use they use these weird ass montages mm. in the movie where you have voiceover while people are walking and it looks like they're talking to each other, but no, it's <laughs> just voiceover. It's just voiceover that somebody's talking from another scene, but you see these mm-hmm. people talking, and they use that, I think they use it like five times in the movie.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Not good, man. Not no. good.
1: No, it's very, it's very very messy. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and, and like you said, the geography is something that just was Hilarious. mind-boggling. So at, it was, at
1: one point, as far as I could follow from the way the movie was cut, um, Evangeline Lilly takes a bridge from detroit to montreal arnie hammer takes a plane
0: yeah because yeah that's how it works
1: (laughs) (laughs) i'm like did i just see that right because at first i was like oh my gosh i roll like she just drove into montreal from detroit that's not a thing and then i was like oh no, no they do know that montreal is a plane ride away because he flew there (laughs)
0: <laughs> she drove she drove for well it's it's editing because you can expand and, and contract yep. time right so yeah it's uh, yeah
1: but it's, it's confusing as hell and it's making fucking sense um, yeah I think that it's Uh, but but again I think with hard for me as a filmmaker like a lot of these things I'm biased okay because like writing is the thing that I love the most and right. I tend to think that if your writing is strong and you had a strong sense of theme and character and there was sound logic going into the editing phase behind like what is this movie about what are we trying to bring out through the editing what are we trying to emphasize then you can do something with that you know Mm -hmm. and then you can you can shape, you can double down on that you can you know same with music everything right we're doubling down on the themes we've all agreed on right and the ideas we've all agreed on when like what is the what are the themes of this movie what is what is it about? Even like I mean, beyond like the events of the story, what is it? What is it saying? How could an editor possibly, you know, refine what the movie is saying when mm-hmm. the movie isn't saying anything?
0: Yeah, well, I think it all comes down to character. I think these mm-hmm. characters were so thin and bland, because yeah. like like for example, we were talking about Magnolia early on. Right. That's a movie that has a bunch of threads, yep. just out there. But you have these characters that are so rich and so compelling yeah. that they pull this movie together, right? And, and even in, fairness, in traffic. And yeah.
1: In fairness to Mr. Jarecki, like we're talking about, like Paul Thomas Anderson and Steven Soderbergh. You know what I mean? We're talking about right the peak right. Of, of these things. Um. But yeah, absolutely. Like you, I did not care about Evangeline Lilly's story, and I think hers was the one I had the best chance of caring. I should have mm-hmm. cared. She's a bereaved mother, and yet I was like, "None of your behavior makes any sense to me. I'm not engaged with what's happening. I didn't even I didn't even see your son for more than a, a five second exchange. So yeah. I have no emotional investment in this. That's
0: probably one of one of one of the things that that bothered me is that they didn't give her that chance mm-hmm. in the script yes. because she starts she starts at eight and then quickly move to 10, and she doesn't move from 10.
1: If you get a chance to see Ben is Back um, okay. with uh, Julia Roberts, so Ben is Back is the best possible version of the Evangeline Lily storyline in this movie. Um, it is flawed in a lot of ways. It's uh, it's definitely, again, it's about an upper-middle-class like, white parent um, and their upper-middle-class white child, but it is emotionally compelling. Um, it semi-follows a sort of reasonable trajectory, um, where the mom is trying to save the kid, but there's no tracking down mafia bosses. You know, there's just like really this mother who's trying to do whatever she can for her son. Um, I was in that one while I was watching it. Like I, it was only afterwards that I started to have like political critiques or whatever. And I think Mm -hmm. that's the difference is because I was, I was engaged with that human being, you know, I cared about what happened to her and I cared about what happened to her kid.
0: Well, uh, Liz, do you have anything else to say about this movie?
1: My last line here was this movie is a series of poorly told lies. So
0: All right. <laughs> that, that's that's going to be the pulled quote for the, <laughs> for the poster.
1: <laughs> so, no, thank you so much for this conversation. I if I had had to okay, like if I had had to watch that movie and not have an outlet to talk about it, Right. I think it would have been truly stressful. So I really appreciate that um, I could come on here and list at great length all of my issues.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, here's what I say: they can't all be winners, right? And nope. uh, we, we, I'm open to talk about what's awesome and what I don't like. So, yeah. So um, while I was watching it, I was saying to myself, "I'm not liking this," and then at the same time, I'm saying. Yeah, Liz is not gonna like this either. So this is gonna be this is gonna be <laughs> we should, tough.
1: <laughs> we should do this again about a movie we both like sometimes, because I right? Yeah, yeah,
0: I, I, I can totally do that. Uh, that's 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 easy. And even if you if you have a movie that you think would be would be a a, a a cool conversation to have, just let me know and and we'll set it up.
1: Awesome. Yeah, I think that'd be really fun because I think it's. Um, I, I get a, like as much as I get some catharsis from um hating on things I hate, I think I, I get a lot of pleasure from like even when we we're talking about like Magnolia or The Matrix, like it's so fun to like re examine why something is really great. You know, mm-hmm. what makes something really amazing. So
0: Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: But so thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, of course. Well, it, th- this is going to be it for us today. But um, for our listeners out there, be on the lookout for the short film, Leah 19, which is coming out this summer. Uh, Liz, uh, what's the best way that people can connect with you these days?
1: Um, I think probably best things are Facebook, uh, TikTok, and Twitter. Um, so I'm on Facebook as Sis, one word, and then Ling, separate words, so two words. Um, on TikTok as at Sizzling, all one word, and on Twitter as at the real Sizzling.
0: All right. And you can find us on Twitter at Media Review Pod. That's Media R E V U E Pod with the hashtag MediaReviewPod. Review Pod. You can send us emails with questions, comments, or suggestions to MediaReviewPod at gmail.com, or you can leave a voicemail by calling 407 603 5847. Please don't forget to subscribe to our feed and rate and review the pod. Liz, thank you so much for being thank here. Thank you.
1: Have this a great awesome. rest of your day, bud.
0: And to all our listeners out there, remember, just because it's a crisis, that doesn't mean that you can't do anything about it. So please, be kind to one another, and of course, don't forget to breathe. Till next time, have a good one. Bye bye. <laughs>